Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Today is April 6, 2021, and according to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 129 mass shooting incidents since January 1st of this year. That's an average of 1.34 mass shootings per day. While there's not a standardized universal definition of a mass shooting, the Gun Violence Archive defines it as when four or more people are shot in a single incident in the same general time and location. So that means as of today, at least 516 people have been shot or killed in a mass shooting just since the first of the year. And that number doesn't include the hundreds of others who have died or been injured due to gun violence, but just not in a mass shooting. Each of these people have friends and family grieving for them. Fred Guttenberg knows this grief. His 14-year-old daughter, Jamie, was murdered in the Parkland School shooting on February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2018. Jamie was killed just a few months after her uncle, Fred's brother, Michael, died of pancreatic cancer, a cancer caused by toxic substances he was exposed to when he ran into the World Trade Center as a first responder during the 9-11 attacks. When Jamie was murdered, Fred committed himself to stopping gun violence, to implementing large-scale change through laws and policies meant to prevent anyone else from going through what he and his family went through. He's gone public with his grief and with his determination to make a difference. Fred recently published his first book, Find the Helpers, What 9-11 and Parkland Taught Me About Recovery, Purpose, and Hope, which chronicles the days, weeks, and months after the deaths of his brother Michael and his daughter Jamie. It also details the people and events that Fred turned to for help in his grief and in his newfound purpose to prevent gun violence. Fred, thank you so much for joining me for Grief Out Loud today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you for having me. You know, we've had this on the schedule for a while, and and I and I hope, um, you know, this. I believe this interview is actually going to be a little different, and I hope that there are going to be some people who will get some help out of this, uh, some hope out of this, and uh, looking forward to doing it. Well, I was just so honored to be reading your book, Find the Helpers, and to be learning about your experience with grief. And to learn so much about your daughter, Jamie, and your brother, Michael, and I thought we could just start there and wondering of, you know, what would you most want the world to know and remember about your brother, Michael? You know, Michael was um, a selfless hero. He never lived life the way he should have for himself. It was always about how to better serve and take care of others. What's amazing about my brother... And he and I have had many discussions about this. He, he, he was one of those who was the first to run into the World Trade Center on 9-11. He got trapped in there when it was collapsing. 
survived that, later on in life got the cancer that came with it, but he would be the first to tell you if he was asked to do it again, he would have in a New York minute. It's who he was. I, I often say about Michael and my daughter, Jamie, they are the two toughest people I will ever know. They stand on my shoulders now as I go forward. And I know you've, you wrote quite a bit in the book of the parallels in a way of Jamie, your daughter, and how she was always helping others and standing up for others and Michael in his work as a first responder. What are some other parts of Jamie's personality and, and the, the mark she left in this world that you want people to know about her? You know, my daughter at the age of 14 completely understood right from wrong, completely understood how to defend other people. You know, that's an age when kids are going through things like bullying, kids making fun of kids. And what was amazing about my daughter, and she was a petite little thing, but tough as nails, she would see someone getting bullied and she would put herself in the middle of it and make the bully stop. She would volunteer her time for other kids with special needs and, and go out of her way to include anyone and everyone in whatever she was doing in school and events, because everybody in her mind should have been treated the same way. And she was 14. She was a remarkable young woman who the world is going to miss out on seeing that potential. But it was there at that young age. I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story about how serious she was about um, her strength. When she was 12, she came home from school and was telling us a story of someone bullying someone else and how she put herself in the middle of it. And she started to describe the size of the bully. And now I become dad and I get concerned. And I say, you can't do that anymore. You know, you're now in middle school. You're going to get beat up and come home with a black eye. And she just looks at me and she goes, you know what, dad, you underestimate me because of my size. She meant it. So I pushed her and she pushed me back and I pushed her again and she pushed me back. And the third time that I pushed her, I got what became known as the kangaroo kick in my house <laughs> because she had strong, fierce, fast, dancer's legs. She was a beautiful competitive dancer and she was going to end it there. When I got myself back together, I, I just put my hand on her shoulder and I said, if anybody ever pushes you around again, that's what you do. She was an amazing, remarkable young woman. And so Fred, thinking about, so your brother, Michael, first one running into the World Trade Center, running directly into danger. Yeah. And then Jamie, the victim of a school shooting. I wonder with that story you just told, if you and your mind have imagined what Jamie was doing in the time when she knew the shooter was in the school. You know, it's, it's actually a great question. Um, every second of every day. I, I, listen, people have got to know me publicly and they see me doing interviews and talking but the part that they don't see is that every time I do this, she's in my head. 
and what's in my head is that final minute. It is my concern over the fear that she had to have had. It is my worry that she suffered if even for a second. I'm a father who has to hope his daughter died instantly. Because if she didn't, that means she suffered. I, I live with this in my head every second of every single day. And because of what I fear she was feeling, and I know that she knew what she was running from, I know I'll never, ever, ever have that kind of fear myself, ever. And so I've kind of lost this capacity for fear, for anxiety. You can't hurt me anymore. That's already happened. You can't make it worse. I'm curious, and you may not have an answer to this, but Jamie died in 2018, and we just passed the three-year mark on February 14th in 2021. And I hear from so many families who even the circumstances of how their person died were very different, but they think about that, those final moments all the time and the fear that their person suffered or was in pain. And I wonder how has, I know it's with you every day, every second, how has that shifted at all over the past three years? It may not have, and, and how do you carry it? It hasn't shifted. I tell people all the time, Jesse and Jamie are my two kids and I will always react to what happens to my kids. That may be the last thing that happened to her that I get to react to, but it's as fresh in my head today as it was three years ago, because it's always going to be that final thing. For me, I think the way I carry it, the way I go forward from it is, is multi-layered but it's by doing what I do, by fighting to do something about what happened to my daughter so that another family doesn't go through this. It's by also coming to this place where I do more to honor what mattered to my daughter in life and to really make sure this world never forgets her name, never forgets her strength, always remembers the positive impact that she had. The other part of your story that really stood out to me in reading your book is that Michael died just four months before Jamie was murdered. Yeah. And so you had four months of grieving for him before the next tragedy and just wondered what, what the grief for him was like over those four months and how that shifted or didn't shift once Jamie died as well. It, it, it is, it's a question I've been asked before, and it's, it's, it was dramatically different. So after my brother died, my grief was, was very, let me take a step back. I'm one of five kids. We've never had that kind of loss in our family. I mean, my parents are still alive, my siblings, all my friends. We've just not had that kind of loss. So when my brother died, it was the first time my family and I went through anything like this. I was devastated. I was broken. But my focus was on my immediate family because we were all going through it. You know, it was my work. My view got really small. It was my family. In fact, to the point where all I wanted to do was make sure my wife and my kids were okay. And so 
they ended up convincing me um, just a few weeks after, because my wife's birthday is October 30th, that one way to help the family get through all this would be a second dog. Um, and we ended up getting that second dog. While I wasn't all on board at first, thank God we did, because he saved our lives. When Jamie died, my worldview blew up. After the initial immediate focus on my family and getting us through this, I started to learn more and become more a part of the world of gun violence and doing something about it. Now, as opposed to my brother, where it was just about the immediate family, now I was thinking about the 40,000 people a year who die every year from gun violence and how to engage in that and do something about that. So my worldview went from being really tight and small to just really big, you know? You know, you, I, I guess people see that in me now because while I, on private times, I'm doing everything I can to make sure my family's okay, I spend an awful lot of time on a big platform dealing with this issue. Yeah, and it's so interesting how grief shows up so differently for everybody, even in the same family, and how people respond to that grief can be so different. And, and thinking about that with your immediate family, your wife, Jamie's older brother, your son, Jesse, and just thinking about what have you seen with the three of you in terms of how people grieve differently and how you've made space for one another in the way that that grief has showed up and the way that it's needed to be expressed. If anyone listening to this interview only listens to this part of the conversation, um, I hope we help people with this because the question you just raised is probably the most important thing that somebody told me to be aware of and I never would have thought of it if not for that. A few weeks after Jamie was killed, uh, our now president, Joe Biden, sat me down for a private conversation and he spoke to me about how we all grieve differently. And he actually came prepared to talk to me about the fact that over 90% of all marriages fail after an event like this because of the fact that we all grieve differently. And he didn't tell me this because he wanted to scare me. He wanted me to know so I could be prepared so that I would understand this and have a plan. And I have been very open about how thankful I am that he did that because I had never thought of it. The fact that he brought this to my attention, I'm now thinking of it. And the truth is he was right. My wife and my son and I are doing this very differently. And if our now president had not said this to me, I would have thought, what's wrong with us? Like, why are we not all grieving the same way? But my wife and my son both really needed their privacy. And they didn't want publicity. They weren't interested in this fight that I'm taking on. I felt this need to engage, to do something. And so we were in a really different place. And it created some early struggles for us how to manage that. And we had to learn how to acknowledge that we're, what we're each doing is okay. That us each going through and finding a path forward from grief in our own unique way is okay. But we have to be supportive of one another. And we have to find ways to go through this together, maybe even totally new experiences that we never had before. For example, um, as a family, we started 
going to the mountains. We've never done that before. And we found peace there. And it's now become something we do all the time because of how much how healing it is for us together. I hope anyone listening to this, going through a grief, understands that those you love, they may not go through it the way you do, and that's okay. That is okay. Don't expect them to, but be there for one another. You know, after being in this field for almost 20 years, I forget how radical a notion that can be for people. So I really appreciate you highlighting it in that way. Because I have it like, of course, grief's different for everybody. But recognizing that even when we know that up here cognitively, it's not till we're going through it and really seeing how different it is and how that can feel scary or unsettling when we see someone doing it really differently than us. And it can bring up those thoughts of am I doing it wrong or they're doing it wrong or how do we do this together since we're so different. So thank you for sharing that example. And I was also thinking, Fred, this might be a strange question, but when your brother died, you became a grieving sibling. You're grieving the death of your brother. Yeah. When Jamie was murdered, you became a grieving dad who was also parenting a grieving brother, Jesse, whose sister Jamie had just died. Wondering what, if anything, you took from your experience of being a grieving brother into your parenting of Jesse, who was now a grieving brother. You know, Jesse idolized my brother. So they had a very unique and special relationship. And in order to help Jesse get through this, I used to talk to him a lot about my brother and a lot about trauma and a lot about the strength that my brother had when he would experience these things and how he went forward because the connection to my brother was one that always resonated with Jesse. So your question goes deeper, I think, than you realize. (laughs) Um, But I'm not sure that I had a, a special learning from the earlier months going through this with my brother, um, other than to remind Jesse at all times that he is part of a family that is really tight knit, that loves each other deeply, that he is fortunate enough to have family and friends who are going to hold him up and be there for him. However, he needs that and that we're going to get through this together. Um, And maybe, just maybe, I think the timing of it being so close to my brother helped Jesse to internalize that because he saw us doing that after my brother died. So as much as it it was traumatic to have these two so close, in a weird way, going through with my brother, I think almost helped us a little bit to go through with my daughter. The other thing I've been thinking about when it comes to having had, I mean, I know Michael's death was maybe more of a private death, like his actual death may not have been as publicized as Jamie, but he died from his exposure in 9-11, which is a very public documented situation. Right. And then Jamie dies in the Parkland school shooting. And and today, you know, we're recording, it's a, just a week since the shooting in Boulder, Colorado, two weeks since the shootings in, in Atlanta. Atlanta that have left 18 people dead. I just wonder, what is it like for you when 
every time another event happens that's similar or at least on the same in the same realm like what does that bring up for you each time you know going through grief is this never-ending process of going forward and finding new ways on this journey forward to what i call our new normal every time these shooting happens it pauses that it sets me back and last week in addition to the shootings for the it doesn't sound crazy there have been so many shootings that they get so little coverage and this colorado one seemed to resonate a little bit to the point where the media was even covering the memorials that were being set up you haven't seen that in a while seeing those memorials for like traumatized me for a couple of days because it brought me back to parkland in a really emotional way there was a um, a daughter last week who wrote a message on twitter she lost her dad in the colorado shooting and talked about how he had just walked her down the aisle a few months ago and how she's pregnant now he's not going to get to meet her kids i felt like I had a really deep connection to that daughter because of what happened to me. I lost my daughter. I won't ever get to walk her down the aisle. She won't ever get to have my grandchildren. And so I found last week to be a really emotional week. It, it set me back. Um, and that's what happens, you know, but it doesn't mean you don't keep going forward. Um, I, at the very end of my book, I actually talk about advice that my aunt had given me when I was 19, 20 years old. I was going through some normal thing that a teenager goes, so I don't know, maybe a bad relationship, who knows what it was. And I was very close to my aunt. And she just said, you know, whoever told you life was going to be easy? Whoever told you you're just going to be on this constant straight path? She's like, you're not. She's like, there'll be potholes. There'll be sharp turns. There'll be, you know, uh, obstacles in the road. She goes, you just keep going forward. You'll find your way. I'll never forget that part of what she said. Oh, that's, that's what I do now. I keep going forward and I find my way. And so last week, while it paused me and it, it was very emotional for me you know i still have to keep going forward i because i owe it to my family and i owe it to those who i love and who loved me and so you know you get your bearings and you keep going forward i i hope anyone listening to this understands you're never ever ever stuck but if you think you are reach out to people reach out to people who you know love you and if you don't have a big network, call a center like yours or go to a place of worship or a local community center. We, there are always people. People are inherently decent and good. Don't ever let yourself feel like you're stuck, that you can't keep going forward. It seemed to you like part of your going forward over the potholes and the sharp turns and the unexpected mountains and things that show up in our lives along the way. 
this idea of purpose seemed to really kind of come to the surface yeah. for you in grieving your brother Michael's death and, and, and your daughter Jamie's death. And I think a lot about in, in the grief world, there's a lot of talk around finding meaning. And I've always been like, oh, that seems like kind of a hard sell because there's sometimes, uh, many times, most time, all time, death seems pretty meaningless, especially if it's your 14-year-old daughter who has been murdered by another student who was part of her school or your brother dying because he was doing something heroic and was exposed to toxic chemicals as a, as a result of that. And so this idea of finding meaning, I'm always like, oh, I don't know about that. But this idea of finding purpose, like continuing to find purpose in life and living. And yeah, I just wanted to see if, just have you share a little bit about that idea of finding purpose in your work right now. So it is a, what a great question. And I want to address the issue of meaning as well. But going to, to purpose first, again, our now president, Biden, asked me a question as we were finishing up, what's your plan? And when I told him, I said, I don't really know yet, but I want to break the effing gun lobby. He then started talking to me about mission and purpose and how that got him through all of his grief. And that idea of mission and purpose has really formed who I am as a person the past few years, because I am on a mission. I do have a purpose and it is the way I get through every day now, but it's a really important distinction between that and meaning. Many people have said to me that they've tried to help me find meaning in Jamie's death, which I can't do. You know, they said things like, it's helped to get you involved in this cause. You wouldn't have done this otherwise. I, I, I didn't need this way to do it. I wish somebody would have given me a different kick in the you know what. I didn't need to lose my 14-year-old daughter to do this. So no, I can't find meaning in the end of her life. However, because of what happened to her life, I have found a new meaning for my life. And I think maybe that's the way to help people distinguish it. I, I can't find the meaning in why my brother died, why my daughter died. I can't. My brother was 50. He was at that point in his life where he was finally going to actually start doing more for himself, you know, and he got robbed of that. Um, so no, I can't find meaning in any of that, but I can find meaning in what I do about it. And I, I think, you know, the very last paragraph of my book, is a message to kids, but really anyone who wants to listen. And I address it to our future leaders and heroes. And I tell them, ultimately what matters in life more than what happens to you is what you do next, what you did about it, how you reacted, how you responded. And maybe that's where people can look for the meaning. You know, not in why did this happen, but what I did. What's your sense, Fred, of how Jamie and Michael would think and feel about your work to prevent gun violence? My brother would probably tell me, there you go, pushing people and having using your big mouth. Because, you know, listen, we were very, very close. Um, but, you know, my brother knew uh, on a personal level, I mean, I could – I. I could be relentless about doing things I wanted. And, and in fact, I spent years pursuing doing more 
to recognize those who did not die on the day of 9-11, but went on to get sick and maybe die later on because of my brother. And it used to drive him nuts. He didn't want me to because he didn't want the world to remember him that way. He wanted to be remembered as a, as a mentor. So my brother probably would have said, there you go, just not being able to stop again. And he would have been right. Um, and Jamie knew right from wrong. Jamie, um, in, in my house, was the, you know, my wife and my son weren't the ones who really engaged in um, current events and the news the way I did. Didn't follow politics the way I knew, but Jamie did. Jamie was the one who would sit by my side and, and scream and yell at people, the political people on the television, and she was 14. On the one hand, Jamie would be incredibly proud of me and would be pushing me to keep doing this. On the other hand, she would be terribly embarrassed by all of the attention. My daughter, like my wife and son, valued her privacy. Um, so while I know she would have for sure been saying, you have to do this, I, I also know that the attention was never something she would seek. She would be your private partner and ally pushing the work. She would. And, and, and listen, I tell people all the time now, I am her voice and I am, and I have no doubt that I am speaking for both of us. And Fred, on the cover of your book, Find the Helpers, there's an orange ribbon that holds the subtitle, What 9-11 in Parkland Taught Me About Recovery, Purpose, and Hope. And I know that's really directly related to your work. Could you talk a bit about your organization, Orange Ribbons for Jamie? Yeah. So orange happened to have been Jamie's favorite color. And the night that she was killed, all of her dance sisters got together at the dance studio and made thousands of orange ribbons. And they came to our house with them the next day to give them to us so that we could hand them out at the funeral, but they were also already wearing theirs. And they went up to Jamie's room and had a very emotional gathering in her room, wearing their orange ribbons and just kind of taking pictures of themselves with Jamie's stuff. And, you know, some of it got posted and it went viral through the dance world. So before Jamie was even buried, you already had dance competitions around the country and the world announcing they were going to dedicate their rest of the year to Jamie and always wear orange ribbons. Broadway, um, Hamilton and Lion King and some other shows announced they were going to dedicate performances to Jamie and they were wearing orange ribbons. And at Jamie's funeral, I spoke about the start of this orange ribbons movement to do something about gun violence. I, I really hadn't thought through what it meant until three weeks later when I was in a Home Depot and someone came up to me and asked me what the orange ribbon was for. And when I told them, they said, did you know that's the color of the gun safety movement, which I did not know. And that was a connection I couldn't ignore. And I went home to my wife that day. I said, we need to start a foundation. I want to make this the symbol of the gun safety movement. And that was the reason to start the foundation. The foundation has since really become more about honoring what matters to Jamie in life. The things like anti-bullying programs and doing things for kids with special needs or our college scholarship program that we've started. 
Jamie won't ever get to go to college, but she's going to help send kids to college. And so orange ribbons for Jamie is about educating on gun safety, but it's more about remembering my daughter's name, who she was, and the incredible things that she stood for. You know, it's interesting, we were talking about meaning a, a couple moments ago, and I think about, you know, there's no finding meaning in Jamie's death. And it sounds a little like the organization is a way to carry forward the meaning of Jamie's life. And, and that is the type of meaning, I think, going forward, that I can wrap my arms around for. Um, I, I, I will never be able to look at Jamie in the past tense. I, I actually gave a TED Talk about this, that the way I look at things with Jamie now is my relationship with her has changed. Not in the past tense, but instead of doing things in person, I now remember Jamie through pictures and videos and, and other means. I don't get to sit with her on the couch, but I sit with her at a cemetery and I still talk to her as if she was sitting to me on the couch. You know, if you, you and I had joked a little bit about the moving hands before when we speak, if you were to drive by and you saw me sitting there, you'd probably be concerned about me because I have full on conversations and my, my hands are very engaged. So I can't look at her in the past tense. I look at it as our relationship has changed. And part of what I do as her dad now is still look for ways to give meaning to her life. Well, Fred, I know I'm going to link in the show notes to your book and to Orange Ribbons for Jamie and to your TED Talk that you just mentioned, but wondering for listeners who are currently tuning in, what are some ways for them to connect more with you and with the work that you're doing to prevent gun violence? Yeah, um, so multiple ways. You can go to um, the Orange Ribbons for Jamie website where we constantly keep people up to date. Um, I have a fredguttenberg.com um, internet page where I keep people up to date. Um, we have orange ribbons pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, and then also on uh, Twitter uh, is my personal page where I'm really the most active in terms of talking to the country and people about what I'm doing, what I'm up to, and, and how to be connected with where my positions are. Um, you know, I do a lot of tweeting off of my personal Twitter page. So multiple ways. Well, Fred, I'm just really grateful for this time that we got to spend together today talking and for your book and for putting yourself out there in such a public way to support others who are going through the grief of having children and brothers and other people in our lives die. I'm just, yeah, grateful. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time, but thank you for being part of our community, for giving this show a reason to be. So if you'd like to reach out to me, you can email me directly at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot If you're new to our show, you can find all of our past episodes at our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot forward slash grief out loud. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>